0: Get Your Creek On. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Get Your Creek On, a podcast about Jonathan Creek. Thanks for joining me today for a supernatural themed tale in which Maddie is witness to the theft of an alien skeleton by the US military. Series 3 of the show certainly has veered away from the more traditional, locked-room type mystery and expanded the boundaries of the JC oeuvre to date. Important announcement, watching the episode will be very much worthwhile ahead of listening to this edition of the pod, and frankly it gasts my flabber somewhat that you might think otherwise. If you haven't watched any Jonathan Creek before, then all I have to say to you is this. No freak, you freak, baby. The Amiga Man aired on December 11th, 1999. Here he is. He coming. Lord, he coming. Aussie man. Episode Synopsis Maddie and Jonathan come out of the theatre after a disappointing production of The Odd Couple starring Steve Harrison and Martin Ford, and not, as the poster implied, Steve Martin and Harrison Ford. As they walk away down a dark alley, a bald man who's clearly watching them glances out from the shadows. Back at Maddie's flat, she tends to a pair of tiny kittens in a cage, a friend of hers runs an animal shelter that's run into financial difficulties, and she's helping by looking after them for the time being. The shelter needs to somehow raise 65 grand or they're going to be evicted from their premises. Jonathan and Maddie discuss the chat show they're appearing on in the morning, and she tries to assure him that he won't be as hopeless on it as he seems to think he will be. Meanwhile, a note is slipped through Maddie's letterbox, reading For the most incredible story of your life, Meet me at Ford's Warehouse on Radisson Way tomorrow night and bring a camera." It's signed by a professor, Lance Grauman. The next day, it turns out Jonathan is anything but shy in front of the TV cameras, and as he goes on about the history of magic, Maddie can barely get a word in Edgeways about her book, ostensibly the reason that they are guests on the show in the first place. Afterwards, as he signs autographs for the swooning crew members, she irritatedly tells him that she has some important work to attend to. She heads off to the dark and dingy warehouse, where a woman comes out of the shadows and chastises Maddie for being late, as Professor Grauman looks on. He starts talking in a very dramatic manner about evil forces closing in, and Maddie's role being a dispassionate observer. She rightly tells him to stop talking in this ridiculous manner, and get down to whatever the business is that he's summoned her there for. He has his female assistant, Philippa Farrell, turn up some lights which reveal what he describes as the skeleton of an alien life form in a glass box. Maddie studies it as Grauman explains how this thing is of indescribable composition, can burn human flesh, and may even be regenerative, i.e. not even dead. It was dug up in New Mexico and passed to Grauman, who is supposedly a world-renowned expert in these kind of things, but he warns that the American military are desperate to get it back and will do pretty much anything to do so. Maddie nips back to her car to get her camera, but as she returns, a military truck roars into the warehouse. Several US troops get out, seize the glass case and lock it into the truck, although one of them badly burns his hand when he accidentally touches the skeleton. Maddie hides in the shadows and grabs some photos, She almost gets shot by the soldiers when she drops her bag and makes a noise but scrambles into her car and screeches off, although she does leave behind some evidence as to her identity. The troops head off in the truck with the skeleton, the furious Grauman left to yell BASTARDS as they go. The soldiers head off to the safety of their airbase and unlock the truck. They take the glass case out of the secure box they placed it in, only to find that the skeleton has somehow disappeared in transit. The next morning, Jonathan phones Maddie to discuss a book signing they're doing later that day, but she's still spooked by the previous evening's events. As she looks through the photos she took, Grauman calls and asks if she wants to make a public splash about the whole thing. At the windmill, Jonathan's minding his own business when a group of soldiers suddenly turn up and bundle him into their truck. The chief, Captain Candy, tells him that they've heard about his mystery-solving prowess and tracked him down to help solve how the alien skeleton disappeared. Maddie turns up at the bookstore for the signing to find that the head has been ripped off the life-size cardboard cutout of her and Jonathan, and then has to deal with the grumpy teenagers who've turned up specifically to see Jonathan and not her. Jonathan's late because the soldiers have taken him to their base to inspect the box the alien disappeared from, Candy's been granted unlimited resources to expedite its recovery, but nobody can understand where the hell it's gone or how it disappeared. He also mentions that they're looking for a woman who took some photos of them taking the alien last night, and Jonathan realises who this may have been. He wants to go away and think about the whole thing, but he's assigned the huge and imposing Sergeant Robotnik to stay with him at all times. Jonathan heads to the bookstore with Robotnik in tow, and suddenly realises it's best to avoid him seeing Maddie and potentially recognising her from the warehouse the previous night. Back at the windmill again, Jonathan tries to work out the solution to the disappearance, but can't concentrate with Robotnik watching him, so he fools the big bloke into thinking that he's driven away and manages to shake him off. Later in Grauman's laboratory, Jonathan and Maddie turn up and the Professor gloats as to how the Americans are struggling to find the skeleton. He talks more mumbo-jumbo and then Philippa Farrell goes even further, talking about how she communicates with other aliens elsewhere in the galaxy. Or maybe it was another galaxy. I didn't note it all down because it was all total bollocks and she's a weird moron. Grauman shows Jonathan and Maddie footage of when the alien was dug up and one of the archaeologists burned their hand on it. Jonathan notes how convenient it was that a video camera just happened to be present and rolling. They stay for dinner, and afterwards Jonathan tells Grauman that he knows it wasn't a real skeleton of an alien. He admits he has a grudging respect for how the likes of Grauman trick the public, and also that he doesn't know currently how he concocted the disappearing trick. Grauman talks more about how the truth isn't out there, pointing to the sky, but in here, pointing to his head. Grauman gives Jonathan a clue as to how he carried out the trick. "'Consider the nine planets in the solar system. Consider one of the nine, which is very cold.'" Maddie and Jonathan go to her flat that night. Jonathan heads for a short walk to think the mystery through, and when Maddie walks inside, she's met by Captain Candy, who escorts her straight back to the army base. He interrogates her about what she saw at the old warehouse and the photos she took. Jonathan heads into Maddie's flat, and as he gets ready for bed, Looks through a book Maddie just happens to have had about the planets of the solar system. It's clearly a children's book, and you have to wonder why Maddie has such a thing in her house, but then again, it's sometimes just better not to ask the question. For example, I once spent the summer months working alongside a guy whom everyone referred to as Tugger, and I decided I'd really rather not find out why. In the morning, he, by which I mean Jonathan, not Tugger, is surprised to hear Maddie leaving a message on her own answer machine, asking him to please pick up the phone. He's soon down at the army base, where she's been kept overnight in a cell, which is surely a little extreme. They discuss the whole thing through again, and Jonathan suddenly figures it all out. He then tells Candy it will cost a $100,000 fee for his services for him to give them the answer. As they go away to discuss it, Maddie falls asleep in her chair. She's woken a bit later by Candy, who tells her she's now free to go. Jonathan and Maddie head back to Grauman's. The two men talk through how the whole trick was performed. One of the nine planets actually refers to Mercury, which is the substance with which Grauman created the skeleton using a mould of some kind. He kept it chilled and cool, and when the American soldiers hauled it into their truck, it warmed up and melted, like an ice cube in the sun. It seeped away into the base unit it was held on, and for all intents and purposes, vanished. This all also explained why the skeleton had a strange aura about it, and how it burned human flesh when touched. All the videos of the archaeological dig and so on were faked, in order to make the whole thing seem legitimate. Grauman talks even more gibberish about man's indomitable belief and capabilities, and ends somewhat over-dramatically by looking skywards and claiming that one day, man will have developed a telescope powerful enough to see God. What a thoroughly strange guy. Back at Maddie's flat later, she's in a mood with Jonathan because he's taken the $100,000 reward from the army and said nothing about it. She notes how she'd never had him down as a mercenary and is clearly upset as he leaves. She then notices that the kittens are messing around with something in their cage. It's an envelope. And when she opens it, she realises it's a cheque for £65,000 made out to the animal shelter from Jonathan. Episode Analysis this was the first Creek episode to really delve into the realms of stuff like Aliens and the Paranormal, and perhaps it's fair to assume that writer David Rennick was looking for a bit of variety by veering away from dead bodies in locked rooms and so on. The episodes that Series 3 opened with, which were Spearfish and then The Eyes of Tiresias, both touched upon things like dreams and the selling of souls, and now we've gone into some full-blown supernatural shit. Kind of. The solution to the central mystery of the alien skeleton being made of mercury isn't one I would have ever worked out because chemistry's just not an interest I've ever had. And I do wonder whether any of you figured it out. Does mercury definitely melt like that at certain temperatures or burn the skin when touched? I suppose it's feasible that Professor Lance Grauman would think up and perform an elaborate scam like this for fame or publicity, but the logistics behind it are pretty eccentric. Somehow ensuring the US Army turned up at the warehouse at exactly the time he needed them is pretty far-fetched, and how on earth he would have ended up choosing Maddie as the ideal independent witness is also questionable. Jonathan somehow being pinpointed by the military as the very man to help them at their end is a fairly large contrivance and whether they would, in reality, provide endless resources and time to recover a skeleton is also debatable, alien or otherwise. I thought Maddy had some really good moments in the episode, breaking the tension in the dark warehouse by noting the skeleton had the slight look of a Millwall supporter she once went out with was very funny, as were the dealings she had with the teenage girls when she made out her autograph on Trudy's book to Turd. Professor Grauman, played by John Shrapnel, was a character who spouted just ridiculous scientific claptrap from the outset, and there's no doubt a risk there that this could have been overacted in a somewhat hammy manner, but nevertheless he came out as quite entertaining. Much like Maddie mentioning her old millwall sporting boyfriend, the gag with him dropping the egg into the boiling water was also an enjoyable twist during a somewhat dramatic and hyperbole-drenched moment. Captain Candy was played by Michael Brandon, Philippa Farrell by Jane Booker, Trudy by Charlie Brooks and Big Sergeant Robotnik by Calvin Williams. Adam Klaus will return in the next episode, but there was no sign of him here, which contributed to there not really being much of a second storyline at all. The closest thing to that was the kitten rescue place being threatened by closure, and it was only really mentioned twice. Once at the outset, where the whole thing was set up, and then at the end, in a scene that's potentially the most touching of the whole show to date, Maddie being really upset with Jonathan for being greedy and selfish, going as far to tell him that she barely seems to actually know him, only to then find out seconds later that he's done something unbelievably generous and altruistic by leaving his reward money to the animal shelter. Yeah, mate, I hear you say that scene was all nice and those kittens were cute, but where exactly did it all take place? Well, you're going to want to stay tuned for this next section. The celebration of Location Information Station. The bookstore at which Maddie sat waiting for Jonathan to turn up was a Waterstones at 23-25 Thames Street in Kingston-upon-Thames. Nowadays it's a Lakeland shop, so if you're in the southwest London area and need any pots or pans or bakeware, head on down. The good news if you have a blue badge for your car is that there's a load of disabled parking right outside. The scenes at the American military base where Maddie was kept in a cell were filmed at what at the time was a real prison, Latchmere House, less than two miles from the erstwhile bookshop I just mentioned. It housed prisoners until 2011, and a couple of years later was acquired by a house builder who navigated a tricky planning process to transform the building into seven apartments. And finally this week, we made a few visits to the flat Maddie is living in during Series 3. She certainly does seem to move around a bit, and this one was at Sutton Court on Falkenberg Road in Chiswick, West London. At the time of recording, there is a flat in the block for sale with an asking price of million million. And thanks to all the donations you have made to this show via the Buy Me A Coffee app, I'm now in a financial position to make a cash purchase. And I've emailed an inquiry to the estate agent asking whether they know if it's close to or indeed is the Maddie McGellan flat from Jonathan Creek Series 3 in 1999-2000. Interestingly, they've yet to respond, possibly because they realise this could add another cool half million or so to the price. The greedy bastards. Creek Connections At 41 minutes, 46 seconds, as Jonathan talks to Grauman, we see that the Professor's drinking his coffee from a mug with apples and blueberries on it. Blueberry is the name of a 2004 acid western film starring Juliette Lewis, who, as well as being an actor, is also a singer in her band, Juliet and the Licks. They had a track called Inside the Cage, featured in action-adventure game Grand Theft Auto IV, which is set in the fictional Liberty City. The town of Liberty, Missouri is a suburb of Kansas, has a population of around 30,000, and, according to its 2016 Comprehensive Annual Financial Report, the ninth biggest employer there is William Jewell College named after politician, educator, and physician William Jewell, who was born on January 1st, 1789, exactly one year to the day after the very first issue of The Times newspaper was launched in London. In George Orwell's 1984, The Times has become the paper of the totalitarian ruling party. The book's main antagonist is an inner party member and spy called O'Brien. Richard O'Brien is a writer and television presenter best known as the creator of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and presenter of the classic TV show The Crystal Maze, and he's also the best-known Richard O'Brien. However, there is currently a fire officer of the same name, employed by the Hampshire Fire and Rescue Service, based in Southampton. One of the more famous former residents of Southampton between 1835 and 1842, was British Army Officer Lieutenant Henry Shrapnel, who is credited with inventing the shrapnel shelling device. He is an ancestor of actor John Shrapnel, who played Professor Lance Grauman in today's episode of Jonathan Creek. Oh God, I'm having heart palpitations. Another Creek connection next time. Catch your creek on. The Omega Man aired on December 11th, 1999, and there certainly was quite a lot going on that particular day. Nicky Six, bassist in Motley Crue, celebrated his 41st birthday. Celebrity chef Marco Pierre White turned 38, and Italian footballer Fabrizio Ravanelli turned 31. It was exactly 10 years to the day before the mobile phone game Angry Birds was launched. It was International Mountain Day, felicitations to those who celebrate, and, as we all know fine well, it was National Tango Day in Argentina. Now, I don't know about you, but I am more of a line dancer than a tangoer, and it was for this reason that I was recently flicking through the December 1999 issue of Line Dancer magazine. monthly magazine dedicated to, well, line dancing. This was a very special issue as it included an exclusive offer on Millennium Line Dancing Diaries and an interesting report from the set of a video shoot for Paul McCartney's single Brown Eyed Handsome Man, which featured, you've guessed it, line dancing. I thoroughly enjoyed a feature on the Merseyside line dancing duo McGill, two fellas who were really at the top of their game at the time. Amongst other topics, in a wide-ranging interview, member Derek Darby was asked about whether there have been any mad moments during their career so far. Once, confessed Derek, I was performing on a stage with some pyrotechnics and placed me jacket onto one of them. After a while, people in the audience started shouting, put another sausage on. I turned round to find me jacket on fire. The audience loved that. I bet they did, Derek. I bet they went absolutely batshit wild. On the letters page, there was a surprisingly large amount of correspondence, most of which was positive recountings of great line dancing events that had recently taken place, but like any letters page, it's the angrier ones that are the most interesting. June Wilson from Norwich wrote in, saying... I am very concerned about the lack of tucking observed when watching line dancing classes here in Norwich. One of the basics of the country and western dancing style is to keep the hands down at the waist area, unless they are being used to clap or make other movements. Some instructors themselves do not tuck or instruct their students to do so. Dance floors are just full of line dancers with arms hanging loosely and flopping all over the place. It is really bad. To sum up, there is no place in country and western dancing for loose, floppy arms. You tell them, June, I am sick to death of this complete fucking bullshit happening all over the place. In the privacy of your own home, you are free to let your arms flop about until the cows come home, but there is no place for that crap on the dance floor. And finally, a correspondent referring to himself only as Cool Dude got in touch to berate a recent news item on local TV in which line dancing legend Scooter Lee was featured. Not only did the reporter openly admit that he could not dance, but he insulted Scooter Lee by stating that he wouldn't be seen dead line dancing and then mocked the, quote, ridiculous clothes we wear. Sadly, the piece then ended with this idiot attempting to join in Rose Garden, the result resembling a barefooted rambler who has just stood on a hornet's nest. Can I just say that line dancing is now recognised as one of the best and most popular events around? And as for the ridiculous clothes, they're far smarter than baggy jumpers, tracksuit bottoms or shell suits. Now, most people who like Jonathan Creek and listen to podcasts about Jonathan Creek are cool dudes, So there's a fairly good chance Cool Dude is listening to this. And I just want to say, pal, we're all behind you. And if you want to form some kind of mob to go down to that TV station and trash the place in revenge for this stupid injustice, then I dare say there will be a lot of us there to back you up. Drop the show an email and we'll get it organised. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Get Your Creek On. If you're enjoying the show, please do take a moment to write a glowing review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll really help more people discover the pod. You can get in touch by email getyourcreekon at gmail.com or Twitter. It's at creekget. The website is getyourcreekon.co.uk and you can head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash get your creek on to help cover the costs of the show. The next episode of the pod will be episode 4 of series 3, Ghosts Forge. Jonathan and Maddie investigate a spooky old house where an old fella was found dead with a knife in his back. That's us done for now, it's been good having you with me once again, and I will speak to you next time. I'm Toby, bye for now. Thanks for listening to Get Your Creek On.